episode 16 of Everyday Eternal. News, news, news. We've got results from GP Paris. News on the newly updated modern band list just in time for the Pro Tour. A very brief Born of the Gods review and Chinese counterfeits. So, welcome back to Everyday Eternal Podcast. I'm Matt. I'm Sam. And we're going to talk about some things because we've been off for a bit. So, Happy New Year. Happy Valentine's Day. It's been a while. So, lots of news. Lots of things in the news in the eternal uh, in the eternal community. To start off with, we had GP Paris that just ended a couple days ago. 1500 Literally yesterday. <laughs> Literally Actually. yesterday. 1,587 people, which is uh, pretty good. That's, we said, about 300 people more than Bazaar of Mox in Paris was. And really, Bazaar of Mox in Paris had better prizes. Uh, the top eight is from 1st to 8th, Team America, Miracles, Reanimator, Miracles, Painter, Team America, Deathblade, and another Miracles. To round out the top 16, there's an Esperblade, Nick Fit, Canadian Thresh, Elves, a Lands that's very combo style. It's got four Crop Rotation, four Intuition, four Living Wish, and three Sneak and Show. Uh, initial thoughts, Matt? Oh, well, I basically what I was predicting going in was going to be the decks that either beat Trune Nemesis, the decks that don't care about Trune Nemesis, or the decks that prey on either of those decks. So that's usually a combo deck. So if we look at the Team America list that uh, Bob Huang and um, Dan Signorini have been playing for ages, the deck's pretty good. I'm not saying it's the best deck in the format, much like uh, Bob is, but it plays first. It does well. It has good game against Trune Nemesis. Miracles totally crushes True Nemesis-based decks. I've been playing Miracles for the past mm, month now, and I've been 11-0 in tournaments, so it's been pretty good. Reanimator, again, just does not care. Uh, Painter preys on all the blue decks. I mean, it's running, you know, 5-6 Blast main. Deathblade has always been a good deck. It is the only True Nemesis deck, actually, that top-aided. Uh, well, the other Team America list did The have... other Team America listed. The sixth place Team America list played yeah. a couple true names. But none in the top four. Correct. So, and three Miracles in the top eight, which is pretty amazing. Uh, the rest of the top 16 is pretty expected. Elves is very good. Canadian Thresh. It's actually not Canadian Thresh, though. It was like next level Thresh. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's like Rug Midrange, which I said was an unexplored archetype that needed to be talked about more. And this person obviously did well with it. Uh, Nick Fit, interesting. Uh, the Lens list, um, that deck shouldn't exist. Yeah, it's a, saying, it's a very it. interesting deck. It's it's not the Jund list that's been big on the Star City circuit over the last month. It's uh, blue-green, and that's it. And it's when looking at it, the only way I think to explain it is it's basically a combo deck. It reminds me a lot of the Eternal Garden, the uh, old 43 Lens list that was a little bit different. Uh, than the traditional 43 lands lists. Like, this one is, and so was the Eternal Garden, more in on, like, crop rotations and stuff like that. So, and then the three sneak and show. So, again, combo, anti-TNN, anti-combo, slash anti-TNN. And you're addressing something I really wanted to make sure we talked about, was that um, when, if somebody asked me what I thought the top uh, eight, top 16 of GP Paris was going to look like, I would have said combo heavy. First, you've got the uh, stereotype of Europe as having a very strong combo-based meta. But Miracles I find interesting because how do you beat combo? Well, Miracles is one of your best ways to do so. And 
the focus on combo, besides just the stereotype of being in Europe and having a combo heavy metagame, combo, all of these combo decks, they don't care about True Name Nemesis. You resolved a 3-1 on turn 3, maybe turn 2, that's great. You already lost the game. I mean, when you're running, at least I know when in my Miracles deck, I'm running 3-4 to four Swords of Plowshares, Engineer Explosive, Supreme Verdict, Terminus, and then out of the board, you're probably running another Terminus slash Supreme Verdict and then a Moat or something like that. Like, your 3-1 doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is Galactique, and no one's playing it, so have fun. Sure, sure. Any other thoughts on the on Grand Prix Paris? Well, I think that people are saying that sure, True Name Nemesis shouldn't be banned. And it's true, because you only see five actual copies in the top eight. However, every single deck here is either designed to beat, ignore, or beat the decks that play True Name Nemesis. Like, it's, it's a pretty polarizing card, even if it's not actually putting up the numbers. Looking at it is pretty ridiculous. Sure, and I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. I think the way I have phrased it to myself is basically uh, True Name Nemesis is a force to be reckoned with, but it's not overly so. It's not something, it's not, you know, six decks in the top eight. It's just something that you have to be prepared to deal with. Just like, you know, just like any combo deck, you have to be prepared to deal with it. And if you're not, that's really your fault for not preparing for the metagame. And the question is, is that considered too polarizing, basically? I mean, I know we were talking about, like, when Mental Misstep was around, it was in, you know, how many of the decks in the top eight, how many people were using it. And one of the definitions that they used to ban Mental Misstep was because it was reducing format diversity. And I think you could still say that Trina Nemesis is still reducing format diversity because you are just producing a bunch of decks, or the only decks that are good and can compete are these few... Uh... See, I don't know about that. Like, Look at the top 16 here. You've got 12 different decks, which is pretty good for a top 16. A lot of times, when, uh, especially like on the Star Cities target, you're seeing as many or as low as 5 or 6 decks in a top 16. Yeah, I'm just saying. Some people are going to argue that, though. Certainly, certainly. But I will not be one of them. Fair enough. Um... Other than that, uh, there was the cheating thing that they were talking about. So do you remember reading about that? I've read a little bit about that. I haven't seen any really, really confirmed information about it, so I don't feel really uh, qualified to speak about what's happened. What I do, what we know for a fact is that a judge was called for something related to Deathrite Shaman. He gave, I believe it was a warning, is that correct? Yeah, I think it was a warning at first. And then later the player was disqualified, meaning most likely something they saw something again or they decided that maybe this was not an innocent mistake. It qualified as straight-up cheating. But other than that, we don't really have enough information quite yet. I'm sure more will be coming out over the next week or two. Yeah, so, I mean, basically some people are kind of pissed because they waited apparently a few rounds to do it, and then PV got into the top eight when maybe he shouldn't have. But you know what? If the guy was cheating, this, this, I don't know his name, whatever. If this person was cheating, you don't deserve to be in the top eight. So, what would suck, though, if it was misconstrued as cheating, but again, I don't know the whole story, so we'll wait to see once a little more information comes out, then we can talk about it a little bit more. 
And on the subject of gigantic tournaments, or at least major tournaments, we've got a Modern Pro Tour coming up. And with that, we've just had a very large change to the Modern Band Unbanned list. Oh, they did something about that finally? Well, I'm just kidding. So, our three changes, all of these I think can be considered major changes. Deathrite Shaman Banned, which is interesting. Wild Nakata Unbanned, which a lot of people expected. And Bitter Blossom Unbanned, which a lot of people have been shocked by. So, Matt, what are your thoughts? Well, I think personally that they need to fix the fucking ban list in that format because you're banning so many cards that are that should be played or at least be tried in the format. There's so many... There's a problem where there's... These cards have been banned since the inception of the format. Very much... Very similar to what Legacy is going through. There's so many cards that need to come off to at least be tried. So I'm glad that they unbanned Wild in the Cattle because that's just a really stupid choice. You actually want to push aggro. Right? Bitter Blossom uh, unbanned? Perfect. You've got another archetype going. Whether Fairies is going to be good enough, I don't know. Deathrite Shaman being banned kind of concerned me. Now, I'm a big proponent of Deathrite Shaman. My life changed when Deathrite Shaman was printed. I love this card. However, is it too good for modern? I don't play enough modern to really say how good it is, but I'm assuming if there's no aggro in the format, you've got some control and some combo, your mid-range decks are going to be pretty good when you're still running... Dark Confidant, Tarmogoyf... When you're running Legacy mid-range in Modern. Yeah, I still think it's pretty good. Could they have banned something else? Could they? Ha- I would have preferred that they unban cards first to see if that will help adjust the metagame. So I think, personally, what they should have done is... I think Stoneforge Mystic is a little bit too good for Modern. Uh, I just think that your answers and the amount of cards that actually outclass Stoneforge Mystic are few and far between. I think, actually, unbanning Jace the Mind Sculptor... And Thopter Foundry would have would have been okay. Um, I know a lot of people aren't going to agree with that, but I like both of those cards a lot. So I think I think maybe pushing control a little bit more to kind of balance out the mid range would have been okay, while still unbanning Bitter Blossom and Wild the Cattle just to see what happens. And in six months, the format doesn't the format doesn't shake itself up enough, and mid range is still too good. Then then you can take an extra step at looking, say, hey, does Deathrite Shaman need to be banned? I would prefer to have more cards in the pool than less. So I think what happened here is I think Wild Nakadal is an obvious unbanning. That's something that people have been expecting for a couple cycles now. So I'm I'm glad that something like that that I don't really think will warp the format in a negative way. I'm glad that's there. I think they really wanted to ban Bitter Blossom, but they wanted there to be a bit more format diversity. And I think if you just unban Bitter Blossom, that you see a lot of the same mid-range decks that are playing Deathrite Shaman, Liliana, just throwing Bitter Blossom in there. And that the reason that they banned Deathrite Shaman was to keep a Deathrite Shaman Bitter Blossom deck from happening. Yeah, that's also true. I mean, that that deck would have been pretty good. However, yeah, I don't know. Like I said. I will say, I, can... I was disappointed by the Deathrite Shaman ban, primarily because, like I said, you were playing essentially a legacy mid-range deck. And I was about to buy my shocks just to say, okay, you know what? I already own most of this deck because I play legacy. And then they banned Deathrite Shaman, and I'm like, oh, man, is that still going to be a deck? Do I have to buy more cards that I can't play in legacy? But I have been following the format a bit more closely. I'm trying to try and get into it and learn a little bit more about it. Uh, Somebody commented that we need to be making less fun of modern uh, because it is a real format. Obviously, there are pro tours for it, so 
Yeah, apparently. But, you know, whatever. I think the format is still fine, don't get me wrong. I mean, I know we tease it because it's kind of like Legacy's little cousin, but it, it's fine. I mean, I just think that, that they're taking a very different approach than the way that I would. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, they're just really limiting the cards that we can use, uh, the cards that are unbanned. Like, I, I just want to use as many cards as possible. That's yeah. all I want. And my biggest concern, again, has, has always been that with these constant changes, uh, that it's very hard to for me to justify getting into a format where I may have to buy a, new de- a completely new deck in six months, which is definitely not the case in Vintage or Legacy. Yeah, well... Depending on when you join the format, turn to Nemesis might have uh, crushed your hopes and dreams. Now, um, one thing people have thought of as a possible thing to fix the modern ban list is having a stated policy of banning, unbanning every three months and actually doing systematic attempts at unbanning. Like, hey, we're just going to try this. If it doesn't work, we can reban it. And I think that's something that it almost looks like they're trying that. But if it was stated, it might give a little bit more confidence to the format. Yeah, I mean, I think if I knew in advance that cards were going to be systematically banned and unbanned, I mean, I think major price changes might be a little bit more stable, because, I mean, if it, if you say, hey, this card is going to be unbanned, and in three months from now it will be banned again... It will be ban- pro- well, in three months from now it will be banned again if it is too powerful. Then, I mean, people aren't going to, I mean, mind you, the price could still spike and then just really drop when people you know, try to unload them right when they get banned. I mean, I don't know. I would just like them to actually work on the formats instead of just being very hands-off and not doing anything. And now, you're, you're pointing out prices, and especially these spikes uh, during banning and unbannings. Uh, Bitter Blossom, I think, maxed out at about $85 on TCG Player after the unbanning. It's now gone back down to, I won't say a more reasonable level, but uh, less than that. And there was an article on, I believe it was Brainstorm Brewery, that was discussing people a lot of times like to hate on so-called speculators, people who hold a lot of cards that they're not playing. And it called uh, it called modern players the... I can't remember exactly what the term was. But the thesis of this uh, article was that a lot of modern players have to essentially be speculators. Otherwise, they're going to have to spend a few hundred dollars every banning and unbanning season. And I think that, again, goes back to there's not a lot of confidence in the format, so people are buying cards and just holding on to them, hoping that maybe they'll be playable eventually. Well, I think it's reasonable to say, like, if you bought a set of Bitter Blossoms two months ago, we're like, maybe they'll unban this. But then there's the people who are buying 20 sets of Bitter Blossom and going, I hope they unban this. Well, sure, and there, there is a difference there. And I think if you, even if you're a legacy player and you just go through the banned list and go, yeah, I should pick up a playset of everything that's reasonable just in case it gets unbanned, and that would be fair. And you know what? If I wasn't trying to finish my beta dual land set, I'd be doing the same thing. But as I said, I'm trying to get a little bit more into modern just so we can speak a little more knowledgeably about it. Right now, I don't know what I'll be picking up. I'll probably start with something similar to the Jun deck simply because I have it. I wanted to play eggs, but they banned that deck, so we'll now see. Now you can just play out. eggs in Legacy. <laughs> no, definitely sh- not. No, okay. So no, I, if I'm gonna play a deck that makes me want to punch myself in the dick, it's gonna be High Tide. Okay, fine, but eggs, but you can lose to Stony Silence. Yeah, th- I don't. 
<laughs> okay, well, let's move on to a set review of this awful, awful set that just A came set out. review of Spirit of the Labyrinth. Basically. So let's go through every other card first. No, let's not. Let's no. Hold on. Let's wait. Let's try to think of any other cards we should talk about first. Hold well, let's... I don't have a whole lot to say about this card, but so many insane plays spent ten or fifteen minutes on Kiora, and I was very questionable about Kiora when I first saw it. But Stephen basically thinks that there's the possibility that it will be playable in a gush-based deck, where maybe with Lotus Cobra where you're playing it on, say, turn two, and then producing five mana off of fetch land the next turn by playing, replaying, fetching. It's certainly an interesting idea. It's more brewing than I would have done. Uh, I think Matt disagrees with me, but you got to brew. you got to come up with something new, so I'll definitely be interested to see if anything comes of that. I think the card's garbage. Don't play it. <laughs> uh, Cure is fine. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure all the EDH players are really excited that they now have a blue-green planeswalker that does things, and it's cool. It looks fun. It's not legacy playable, therefore I'm not interested. Well, you know, Alex Bertoncini tweeted that he was very happy with the printing of this card. I he's happy he's not in shackles for <laughs> cheating all the time. I don't know. Like I I'm I'm not going to talk about that now, but I had to say something. He just liked the fact that it's green because it's the same color as Explore. I don't know. No, it's it's one of its abilities is Explore. Oh, well, there you go. Point being, let's look at all the other cards in the set we should review. Let's just give it a let's give it a moment while we think about all the other cards that might be remotely playable. There's uh, Pain Seer, which is fake Bob. Yeah, I think Pain Seer is interesting because um, it's a two-two, so meaning it doesn't die to minus one minus one effects that are now in the format. But you have basically have to attack or tap him somehow to get the card. Which realistically it's... means you have to attack or probably play Springleaf Drum, which is in this set, interestingly enough. So maybe this is an affinity card waiting to happen. I don't think they need it, though. So what's happening? No, they have, they have you know, Gush for one blue, so that's fine. Well, maybe if you're playing some sort of like crazy mono-black deck where you're killing all their guys, like it's just like... Gatekeeper deck, like an epox I mean? deck. Yeah, but even like... in epox deck, would you want to play Painseer over just Bob? I don't know. Anyway, you probably wouldn't want to play either in epox deck because you'd have to sacrifice him. But I know what you mean. Uh, so basically, I'm just gonna come out and say that the, the this set was a really big disappointment for legacy playable cards. However, there is one, nah, I would say, dull example. Some people are going to say shining example of legacy playable, but Spirit of the Labyrinth. Sam, take it away. Spirit of the Labyrinth is one and a white. It's a 3-1, so already you're doing pretty well relative to, you know, power toughness on, uh, on that cost. Each player can't draw more than one card each turn. This is obviously... Insane against Brainstorm and pretty much every blue deck ever. So the question is, does it matter? In my opinion, it does not. Is this card good? Conditionally. Would I play it in any deck except Death and Taxes and even then, not even sure if it's good enough? No. Really? So, I think that's interesting. I'll tell you why. My opinion is this. Okay, so it is a 3-1 that's tutorable with a Lightning Tutor that prevents can tripping. That seems good unto itself. 
The problem is they're probably going to get a brainstorm before you put it down, possibly, or a brainstorm in response. Does that matter enough? I don't think it does. Because you can still respond to it with the Swords to Plowshares, you can still remove it. All these blue decks are interested in drawing extra cards, don't get me wrong. But I mean, beyond four Brainstorm and two Ponders that most decks are playing, or even just say four Brainstorm, does anyone really care? So I mean, I'm playing Deathblade, and I go Stoneforge, Mystic, Jitae. You have your little 3-1, I can't draw extra cards, great. So he dies... And then I just draw cards. So, my, my, my issue is this. He only becomes really back-breaking back when the opponent brainstorms and then you en- he enters the battlefield in response. Well, I think this is a card that you really can't look at in a vacuum. I think that it's something where if you pair this with, say, Aven Mind Sensor, where now their deck is essentially... The way it is on the table now is the way it's going to be for the rest of the game and they're not going to be able to go through things, that's where I think this card in Legacy is going to really shine. Well, okay. So, I mean, I've asked a bunch of Death and Texas players if they're going to be playing it, and a few are going to be playing a couple in the sideboard. But most people aren't going to be playing it. The only deck that really can play it, in my opinion, is Death and Texas, and even if, and even they are a little bit skeptical of it. That's That's my kind of opinion. I think the best way to do it is to flash it in. So, Aether Vial. Certainly. Brainstorm in response, I'll Vial in this Spirit of the Labyrinth, and just, you don't get to do anything. And not you. So I think, would this would this card be playable if it was a flash? So say it was the same cost as Avon Mind Sensor. It was a 3-1, um, like, everything was the same. 3 mana. I would play it. But without the flash, it makes it a little bit worse. And by a little bit, I mean enough that I'm not going to be playing it. I think where this is going to be more played is Vintage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this card will be played in Vintage, no problem. Because, essentially, uh, the only deck that its ability does not matter to is Mud. Would you agree? I'd agree. I mean, I think some decks were playing Staff of Nin or whatever, which lets them draw an extra card, but, like, that's not your main win condition or anything. But... Even then, its ability isn't super relevant to Mud, but its three power is extremely relevant. Killing Lodestone Golem with something that you play turn one is excellent. That's also true. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That seems okay. Now, this does have to go in lists that historically have not been as powerful. You're looking at probably something like a fish list, uh, maybe a Bant, or even a sort of death and taxes style deck that we don't really have in vintage right now. That might be something that's able to become a little more powerful with something like Aven Mind Sensor, Leon and Arbiter, maybe Splashing Green for Gaddic Teague and Termogoyf for the things that are going to go in their graveyard because they get immediately countered or something. Yeah. I think it could be interesting. Also, I think we did for- actually forget one card in the site review. Oh, what's that? Brimaz. The Cat King. Oh, you actually have to look it up. Wow. Oh, I, I did remember what it did. I just want to make sure that I uh, read it, because it does a lot of things. Brimaz, King of Oriscos? I'm going to say that's King of Oreos. It's Perfect. one white, one white, white, legendary cat soldier. It's a 3-4, so we're doing pretty well for three mana. Vigilance, whenever it attacks, put a 1-1 white cat soldier token with Vigilance onto the battlefield, attacking. 
Whenever it blocks, put that same token into play, blocking the creature. So basically, he attacks for three, you're immediately attacking for four, with a Vigilance guy, right? So then whenever you block, you're, actually, you're also gonna, going to get an extra power and toughness in your blocking. So essentially, he will block as a 4-5, and he will attack as a 4-5. However, the 4-5 in the attack is separate. Um, how good is this? Think about Turin and Nemesis. So, you play Brimaz. Great, they have a Turin and Nemesis with no equipment. Turin and Nemesis swings. Uh, great. Three. You swing back for four. Um, he tries to block. Turin and Nemesis doesn't kill this guy. He has vigilant. Like, it's... Vigilance is very good. They, they either take one from the cat, or they take three from Brimaz, which is... Which, they're gonna take one from the cat. So... I think a deck that actually really appreciates this card is a card is a deck that plays Cabal Therapy, so like a Dead Guy Ale list would really like this card, as well as uh, Death Taxes. Uh, now, a few of my friends have been playing Death and Taxes with this card and have said this guy is insane. And not only did they want three, they wanted four. Plus, you're already playing four Caracas, so you're always protecting this guy, and you have Vile. So you could always Vile this vile guy. Vile him in, into block so that you and have... And then block is a four or five. With with if the one one survives with an extra creature next turn that can attack, yeah. Uh, where I definitely see this being played, not that this is a major uh, archetype or deck, is there's a local player who plays what he calls death and death. It's essentially death and taxes, but he can't afford the more expensive bits like Caracas's, uh, Rashidun ports, so he just plays more aggressive stuff. And, yeah, I think it's called Hate Crimes. Is the deck and. Brimaz, next to Hero of Bladehold, you're just going to have to pick up your cards. Uh, yeah. Too Let much. me tell you, I have lost to Hero of Bladehold. It is, that card is really, really good if you don't, if you don't take care of it immediately. I, I can imagine. And that's the card that I would immediately compare this to. And I think it's interesting that you say 3 or 4 in Death and Taxes when Hero of Bladehold is not in a lot of Death and Taxes decks. Oh, how many? How much mana does uh, Hero cost? Is Hero is three, isn't it? No, it's four. Oh, it's four. Okay, well that uh, that would explain that. Yeah, I'm very certain it's four. It is. You're correct. It. You're correct. I know I am. It's, it's okay. Um, so we also have some viewer questions that we'd like to answer before we move on to the topic that we've been waiting to talk about for a long time. So Sith says, "When's the next episode coming out?" Sith will tell you when the next episode is coming out. It's it's when you're listening to this. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about non-rotating formats, comparing modern and legacy. Let's not bash modern. No, come on. We gotta bash modern. It's <laughs> great. It's great. Why would you not want us to do that? Any other... Let, now I'm just looking on the Facebook page. Let's actually answer some questions as opposed to not answering these questions. Let's try to find them. I have a question for you while you're scrolling through these on the subject of our set review. Yeah. This is something that I was thinking of last night when preparing my notes for this. As an Eternal player, specifically Legacy and Vintage, yeah. how many cards do you expect to get per year now? And when I say get, I mean how many new cards do you expect to come out that you're interested in? I think as an Eternal player, I should see one card per set that is remotely playable. So I'm talking about if it's as playable as Spirit of the Labyrinth, it doesn't have to be a hate card. But as long as it's like, somebody might include this in their deck somewhere, that's what I want to see. Right, so what would your number be? Four, then? For three yeah, sets four. and a core? Yeah. 
I was I was looking at this this question and I thought, okay, so you have three sets, you have a core set, you also have your summer product, and most of the time your core set is about ninety percent reprints. So the core set is really just like half a set, and I think four cards a year, three one out of each set and one out of your summer product or the the core set. I think four is I'm I'm satisfied with. I think it's fair, and. Uh, our our summer set this year is uh, we're not going to talk extensively about it. It's a multiplayer based set, as Commander is and so forth. But it's primarily based on drafting and things that are especially interesting in multiplayer sets. And they have said that there will be some reprints in this. So naturally, my first thought is, what's a really juicy reprint that fits this theme that they've given us? And not that I actually expect them to print this, but the first one that came to my mind was Show and Tell gets infinitely more interesting when four people get to Show and Tell something in. I'd agree. And I think maybe not something as expensive and as powerful as Show and Tell, but there will certainly be at least one card in that set that is good enough to see Legacy play simply because it will be something along the lines of a Show and Tell where it's very fair in a multi-multiplayer environment and very unfair in a two-player environment. Maybe it'll be like a five-mana show-and-tell because in EDH that doesn't matter. I don't know. Uh, another question was, can you speculate on the price of Death Shaman now that it's been banned in Modern? Well, this is not a financial podcast, so I'm going to say if you were hoarding Death Shamans, you probably are now just shit out of luck. I agree. I think that turns Deathrite Shaman into essentially a long-term hold while you wait for it to become rarer. And being that it's a rare and not a mythic, that's going to be quite a while. I think a lot of people also speculated on the card thinking it was going to go to 15 or $20. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit eh because I bought uh, some Russian ones right before they banned it. So I probably overpaid by a little bit, but... You know, whatever. Now I just have nine Russian Deathrite Shamans. Oh well. So now let's move on to the last thing that we've been talking about for a while on the forums, but uh, hasn't really come up. So, the fakes issue. I know this is a little old, but we've been busy and we haven't had time to talk about it since this story kind of broke online. But, Sam, do you want to kind of walk us through what we're going to talk about? So, personally, I'd prefer not to talk about the effects or what we think of it or the morality or the ethics because right now as far as i'm concerned what's done is done the fakes are out there uh a friend of the podcast provided us with uh, a few cards just to take a look at and uh i will say that i am not someone who obsessively checks my cards like I'm, i'm not taking a loop to every card in a trade but even to me at least the set that we've received it's fairly clear that they're not real. Just picking them up and looking at them, no special equipment, not even putting them next to another card, I think it's fairly clear right now. Yeah, I don't want to go through every specific of what's wrong with them, because this is only going to make the counterfeiters do a better job. However, I think if you have experienced trading, and you've looked at cards before, and you've touched cards before, you can immediately tell that these cards are not real. Um, they're just bad. A lot of the people came up to me and they're like, yeah, if you weren't really, if it was in a sleeve across the table, you wouldn't notice it. 
But as soon as you take it out of the sleeve and look at it as if you were trading for it in person, you're 100% sure it's not correct. And what I think that means is they can be played in tournaments. I put that in air quotes, not that we would ever uh, recommend such a thing. But you certainly won't be trading for them unless somebody finds a way to make them less fake looking up close. Now, I, I don't want to downplay the significance of the possibility that you will buy or trade for some of these. Go get, like, a, I bought a jeweler's loop for $3 on Amazon, and that $3 investment will be worth it if someone tries to pass off a Tundra on you and you figure out that it's fake. Uh, but the real sign to me that this isn't a super big problem, at least yet, was I took them to the local game store to show them around, and there was a guy there who, he doesn't play Magic, he's not even particularly interested in Magic, but he took one look at them and he said, and he said, Okay, I'm going to guess which ones are fake. And he went through and he picked them all out. Not as, not as someone who plays Magic, doesn't trade or anything. He was immediately able to tell just from picking up draft chaff off of tables and throwing it away. Like even my dad, who does not play Magic, does not want to get involved in it, who thinks it's kind of stupid, still kind of says, like I showed him, I put a pile out and I mixed together real and fake like duels and fetches and he was able to pick out nine times out of ten which one was the fake one. And he doesn't look at the cards at all. Just by feel, he's like, these ones feel cheaper. Yeah, so, like I say, I, I don't think, at least yet, there will be a problem in terms of you getting some from eBay or anything like that. But I do think that you'll hear of people playing them because they are good enough that across the table, you won't be able to tell. There are sleeves now that, uh, there's a, I think Ultra Pro makes one that is has a matte face that yeah, slightly obscures the card, and that will make it even easier to play a bad fake. I mean, let's put it this way. I, uh... We were playing in a tournament on Saturday, and somebody needed to borrow some cards, and we did not have four underground seas for him to play. So, what did we do? This guy, we I wanted to actually test this. So what I did is, we were just playing in a fun tournament, didn't matter. We put four of these fake underground seas in his deck and he played and he did not know until three rounds in when he looked at them he's like oh these look a little weird well and no one else noticed either nope interesting so again playing with them if you're not looking for them you're probably not going to notice it but once we took them out of the sleeves and looked at them close up he's like oh yeah 100 percent these are but again it was just enough that he he wasn't thinking about it he wasn't in that frame of mind because i just passed him the deck and everybody else just kind of didn't say anything. We just wanted to see. So. That's interesting. Yeah. Probably not ethical. But uh, I wanted to see. We must must gather data. Well, I'll be playing them in my EDH deck because EDH doesn't count. And I would hate to pay $115 to put a card in an EDH deck that I play like once a month. Yeah, I mean, but I'm not even sure what you have access to. Like what cards you got sent for this, but. I've got a couple duels. I got a force. Uh, got a thought seize. Okay. Point being, yeah, g g ladies and gentlemen, listeners, it's not as scary as you think it is. Yet. Be careful. Understand what real cards look like and feel like. Other than that, have fun. Yep. That's my. That's my opinion. Cool. Yeah, we got so through uh, all of our stuff pretty quickly today. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, changing face of the metagame? Upcoming predictions? I got nothing on that right now. 
Well, I mean, with the rise in miracles, what decks counter miracles? Uh, decks that play Cross and Grip. Decks that play Cross and Grip and decks that play Gattigue. So, projected Gattigue. Maybe Junk, maybe... But Junk is not the greatest against True Nemesis right now. We're still trying to find a build that's very solid against it. I don't see Miracles becoming super, super prevalent simply because it is a very difficult deck to play. It's also really slow. I mean, there are times... It's very slow, and it's not just slow like it takes a long time, but it's the kind of slow where if you go to a large tournament, you should expect that you don't get any breaks all day because you'll be one of the last people to finish... And there's a big difference between being one of the last people to finish and being one of the first people to finish and getting to walk around and get to get a water or a drink or a, some, a snack. So I don't think that you'll see it becoming super prevalent simply because it's not a deck that's, uh, that's easy to just have. Kind of like uh, High Tide is like that, where I think more people would play High Tide if you could just play High Tide and win in five minutes. Yeah, I think the best way to play Miracles at a tournament is to actually bring somebody to be your personal assistant to hand you water and uh, to have a catheter inserted. <laughs> I think then you could really crush a tournament with Miracles. I don't know. I'm just I'm just saying. Well, I'll be continuing to play it. Okay, anyway, so the point being is Miracles is a good deck. You should play it with an assistant to play optimally. Um... Yeah, I, do, I don't think Miracles is ever going to be, like, 10% of the metagame. Don't get me wrong, three in the top eight is really good. But those are pro- three very good players. I know Philip is really active on the source. He's a really good Miracles player, and he has a pimped-out deck. I think a lot of people just might have been intimidated and just, uh, you know, conceded to him. Yeah, his was, uh, like, Jayco-level pimp. Yeah, like, it was fucking ridiculous. It was It was really actually, nice. uh, there were enough alters, I saw a couple people tweeting that if they were judges, they would not allow the amount of alters he had. Because there were some that I looked at the picture and I was like, I can't really tell what he has in play. Yeah, I'll be honest, it was a little bit, it was a little bit much for me, at least. So, again, remember if you're going to bring an alter deck to a tournament, always make sure you ask the head judge to make sure it's a-okay. I do have a uh, tournament announcement, which I have not one, done one of those since, like, the third episode. Oh, wow. Uh, in, the, in the Houston area, Empire Central, which is actually in League City, is doing a power series. It's on approximately the 20th of each month, or whichever Saturday falls nearest to that. They are doing a $30 tournament. Uh, registration at 11. Tournament starts at 1. And first prize is guaranteed a piece of power. After uh, the ninth tournament, the ninth one is a Black Lotus on October 25th, there will also be points given based on how many tournaments you've participated in and, uh, and how well you have done in the tournaments. And the prizes for that include four underground seas, four forces, 150 and $100 store credit. So there's definitely some kick-ass prizes. So if you can make it to the Houston area, the first tournament for this is this weekend, February 22nd, and then every approximately the 20th from then till October. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I'll be going... uh, I have no need to play Time Twister in my vintage deck, but I'd certainly like to have one, so I will be attempting to win that one this coming weekend. Well, I hope you do win it. Thank you. So, yeah, I think that's it. I think our next podcast is actually going to come live from... Not live, but, you know, straight from California. Yep, should be exciting. Can't wait to see you. Yeah, it should be good. All right, well, thanks for listening, and until next time.
Sam, take it away. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your feedback. Email us at everydayeternalcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash everydayeternalpodcast. And follow us on Twitter at eternalmtg.